From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. Your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana. It's Easter weekend in the Christian tradition. Meanwhile, the Jewish festival of Passover began on April 15th, and Muslims are observing the holy month of Ramadan until May 1st. May the unusual confluence of celebration and spirituality from all three Abrahamic religions bring new unity to a world fractured by division and separation. Here on State of Belief, we'll take this hour to revisit some of our favorite conversations and people from past shows. Tributes have poured in, including from former Daily Show host John Stewart, who said he greatly admired his passion and tenacity, and Hillary Clinton, who wrote that she will miss his critical work to counteract misinformation and media bias, but a loss. On April 6, crusading press integrity activist and commentator Eric Bollert was killed in a tragic bicycle accident near his home in New Jersey. A frequent guest on political talk shows, Eric was a fixture at the Watchdog website Media Matters for a decade. We were fortunate to have him with us on this show in 2016, and the issues he raised are as relevant today as they were six years ago. There's a fellow here, his name is Bob Vanderplatz, and uh, he's head of the Radical Right Group here. And one day I just walked up to him and said, hi, my name is Donna, I'd like to have coffee with you. And so we met for coffee. And what surprised me was I really liked him. The Christian Coalition once called her the most dangerous woman in America. A label activist Donald Redwing wore with great pride. I called her my dear friend. It's hard to believe that Donna left us after a fierce battle with cancer on April 16th, 2018. We were fortunate to have Donna with us on State of Belief a number of times, and today I want to rewind to this conversation from December of 2016 as she was stepping down as the highly visible and highly effective longtime leader of One Iowa, the leading LGBTQ rights group in the state. The minority is when a deeply devout Jew and a deeply devout Christian get together because those two positions in life kind of naturally take you away from each other. With the overlap of Easter, Passover, and Ramadan this year, I was reminded of a 2010 conversation we aired with Don Kepler founding director of Building Jewish Bridges. She addressed parenting in an interfaith context, and we'll replay that conversation this week. In order to connect with God, you need to first connect with yourself. And that's the most important message of Ramadan. You know, you need to connect with yourself, and you only do that when you are willing to challenge yourself and its concepts and its perceptions 
of life. We'll hear from the first full-time Muslim chaplain hired by an American university, Georgetown's Yahya Hindi. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it. You can do it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. You. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now, the best of State of Belief Radio. Here's a conversation we first shared in 2016 with progressive media watchdog and commentator Eric Bollert. You've recently published an article calling out five people close to Trump who have propagated fake news. Please talk about that. The problem with fake news is it, it played such a large role during the campaign. Right, So the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and others have done a pretty good job in terms of correlating and trying to measure just how important it was. And it really was kind of a land rush in the last four, six, eight weeks uh, when we saw the traffic numbers just exploding in terms of Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And uh, in terms of the research today, the the fake news was overwhelmingly pro-Trump and anti-Clinton. So it's not a problem that it seems to be affecting both sides of the political spectrum. It really seems to be a conservative problem, and the problem is it affects the rest of the political dialogue. Yeah. And so it's not just people kind of passing these around casually or, or, or your aunts and uncles kind of upgrading the email chain that they used to send around with some suspicious information. I mean, this was Donald Trump's son. It was retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who is now being tapped to run the National Security Agency. His son, during the heat of the campaign, they were sending out tweets about how Clinton supporters were being paid to attend rallies, how Hillary Clinton might be tied up with some kind of sex ring Mm -hmm. uh, and things like this. So stuff that was just kind of off the charts, and, and, and stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with policy, had absolutely nothing to do with kind of what kind of president Trump or Clinton would be. Most of it was just very dark, ugly, kind of character assassination built around phony allegations, built around claims, you know, the FBI had just raided Hillary Clinton's office and things like that. So, the problem escalated quickly during the last couple of months of the campaign, and it was fueled by people who are now in, in the inner circle of, of the Trump team. I'm seeing, and I know you've seen it too, astounding numbers about the propensity of people who voted for Trump to believe only what he says. We've seen documentation that 80% or so of these people believe that he won the popular vote, that there were millions of illegal voters uh, in the election, and it doesn't matter what they see. So 
Tell me, is there a way to get to those people, or do you just have to say, we're just going to try to get everybody else informed? Well, that's a good question. And to be honest, uh, I think it's very difficult to reach those people. Uh, There was just a poll out, uh, I think it was South Carolina, Trump supporters, 60, 70, 80% want, you know, Muslims banned in America, 60% want gays banned from America. Over 50% want Islam to become illegal in the United States. I mean, you're not going to reach those people. Right. But what is important, I think, is to reach two main groups. Independent voters who are still, you know, engaged and smart and paying attention and, you know, can always use an education. And the mainstream media in terms of sending up these red flags, not letting them either get suckered in or not letting them deal with this issue casually Mm -hmm. and not to let them just kind of write it off as well. That's, you know, it's just kind of the crazy on the fringes doing this. Uh, And I'll give you a perfect example. I just wrote a piece on the press coverage of the Trump transition so far. And and again, going back to Michael Flynn, who Trump wants to be his head of national security, Mm -hmm. you know, a week before the election, he tweeted out an article This was like a classic fake news article Mm -hmm. that claimed Hillary Clinton was linked to sex crimes with children. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, if you're going to be doing that and then you get tapped to be national security, that would be a part of every profile any journalist would ever write about Michael Flynn. And we saw a flood of them, right? People didn't know who he was. Who is this guy? He's going to be an incredibly important job. Lots and lots of long profiles about Michael Flynn. I read them all for my research. Virtually none of them, virtually none of them, mentioned that he had tweeted out a fake article claiming that Hillary Clinton was was involved with sex crimes with children. And and that's crazy. I mean, that has got to be, that's got to be included in every single article about this guy. Because, look, if a prominent Democrat during a campaign last month tweeting out 9-11 truther stuff, mm-hmm. and then President-elect Hillary Clinton wanted that person to be head of national security, I guarantee you that person's fake news tweets would be incredibly important. So it's important that the mainstream press, the D.C. press, doesn't try to downplay this stuff when senior, senior people on the Trump team are engaged in it. Do you see, Eric, uh, any real pressure yet to stop this practice that seems to be working? Uh, like a lot of people who played a role in Hillary Clinton's defeat, uh, decided to do something after the election. <laughs> so Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, in the in the week after the election, said it was basically said it was ridiculous to claim, you know, fake news stories that were spread on Facebook had anything to do with the election. Once some of the research started pouring in, Facebook definitely changed its message. They're addressing it. They still don't think they're to blame, of course. But they claim they want to do something about it. Google wants to do something about it. You know, I think the big question is, is there still going to be this this major audience, right? This was kind of a perfect storm for people in the fake news business. And we've we've seen some good reporting. You know, Washington Post and others Mm -hmm. have interviewed people who make their living doing this. And they said, oh, by the way, we tried to do it with liberals, but they they didn't bite. They didn't take the bait. Mm -hmm. We did it with conservatives you know, pushing out this anti-Clinton stuff, Mm -hmm. and they started getting a million hits per article. So it's kind of a perfect storm for them. It was this perfect campaign. This villainous character and the person of uh, Hillary Clinton was created. 
and Trump was this very unusual character who seemed to embrace lies and, and, and fake news himself. I think that one of the questions is post-election, what are the fake news stories going to be about, right? If mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton leaves the stage, if your villain is gone, is there still going to be that appetite sure. online? Yeah. Fake news about how great Donald Trump is, I'm not sure that's going to generate the same kind sure. of traffic. So I think the people who monetized it, it'll be interesting to see how they're going to try to continue this momentum. The companies say they're going to try to do something about it. We don't know what that's going to look like software-wise or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. But hopefully, between them being proactive and hopefully between a change in the political landscape, there might be less of a, an appetite for this for now. But what happens next campaign? We don't know. There is no excuse for just sitting back and watching at this time. There needs to be an aggressive effort to combat it. Is there a fact-checking role that social media users who desperately want to separate truth from fiction can play in this work? Well, look, you know, as I said, you know, some of these people who who make fake news for a living, specifically a couple people said they tried to do it with the Bernie Sanders supporters. Mm -hmm. And the quote in the Washington Post from one of the guys was, you know, they'd float these stories and it would be debunked by the first or second comment, you know, the reader comment, and then it wouldn't, wouldn't go anywhere. So, you know, I think for a huge, I would say for a majority of the population, people are still able to understand true and false. If a story's too good to be true, and it's coming from a source you've never heard of, odds are it's not true. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty easy to just click on the next article and, and, and do a little fact-checking on your own. But again, this is a larger cultural problem. Look, Fox News built its its empire, sure. misleading uh, viewers for 20 years, certainly much more aggressively during the Obama years. And so there's a political culture among conservatives and sort of hardcore believers that, you know, if it's on Fox News, it's true. And then you, if you take that leap, if it's on Facebook, it's true. Or if it makes Hillary Clinton or Obama look like criminals, it's true. Those people are, they're committed, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and there may not be much we can do about them. But again, it's, it's very important to shine a spotlight on this and make sure everyone else is aware of what's going on. I'd like for you to tell our listeners how to support your work. I know they're concerned about this. We get questions about it. Give them information about how to listen or how to support your work. Sure, sure. The easiest way is just to visit us at mediamatters.org, and you can see all the items we put up each day, videos, transcripts, news analysis. There's a ton of great stuff, and visit it every day and see what you can learn. Eric Bollert was killed in a tragic bicycle accident near his home in New Jersey. He left behind a wife and two adult children. We're just getting started with this holiday edition of the Best of State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. I'm Welton Gaddy. There's more coming right up. Donna Redwing was a towering moral voice for the rights and dignity of LGBT persons. Her actions changed lives, and her passion changed hearts. From 2016, here's a look back on her work 
leading one Iowa. Donna, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much. And you know I love speaking with you, so thank you. There have got to be mixed feelings about retiring at such a troubled time for our nation. I feel that. Is Are you feeling some of that? You know, three and a half weeks ago, I thought I was retiring, and um, the world was moving forward in a way that it, it seemed like it should. And then we had the elections, and it feels like here in Iowa and around the nation, uh, we've gone to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything's changed. And I think the scary part is we don't know what the changes will be. We have some idea, and I think there are people who are, are really frightened. But we don't know. We don't know what will come in January and beyond. And so I think this is a very, very hard time. So my first reaction was, oh, my gosh, you know, how can I retire? And then I thought, how could I not retire? Uh, now is the time for me to be untethered uh, from an organization. Uh, now is the time for me to do, you know, there's inside work and there's outside work, right, Walton? Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, I come from the generation of ACT UP, Queer Nation, and Lesbian Avengers. So I might have some fierce and fantastic times ahead. That's a really great way to look at it, and I'm I'm not at all surprised to hear you say that. Um, you were called the most dangerous woman in America. I know you're proud of that. I'm proud of you for them calling you that. Tell our listeners how that label came about. There was a um, a, a wonderful um, writer for the uh, Des Moines Register. His name was Rob Borsellini, and he... Um, covered a lot of the political and cultural things that went on in Iowa, especially during caucus season. And he was doing a piece on LGBT persons working on presidential campaigns. And uh, this was back in the early 2000s, and I was um, Howard Dean's liaison to the LGBT community. And so he kind of honed in on me and made some phone calls. And when he called, I believe he called someone at the Christian Coalition, that's what they said about me. And and as he dug a little deeper, though, it wasn't because I'm a mean, nasty, awful person. What he heard was that, um, that I was dangerous because people liked me. Uh, one of the people said if I were their neighbor, they know that I would, you know, feed their dog and make sure their plants got watered. I was that kind of a person, and that's what made me dangerous. And I think there's a real lesson there. You know, when the faces and voices and stories of LGBT people get seen and heard, and we're your neighbor and your friend and your daughter and the person you like most at work, that's really dangerous to them in the culture war because how can they then work against us? Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the first times that I called you, I called you to let you know that, that you had been selected to receive the Walter Cronkite Faith and Freedom Award. That's enough in itself, but I, I want our listeners to know that the decision to give you that award was made with a group of people uh, that I talked with about who ought to get the award. That involved uh, 
President Gerald Ford, Andy Young, uh, Bill Moyers, uh, John Lewis, Joan Brown Campbell. So it was no little award that you were getting. Later, I called you to ask about you coming to work for Interfaith Alliance. What drew you to become involved in the Alliance enough to want to work in that agency? Well, first of all, I hope your listeners know that anyone who meets and connects with the Reverend C. Welton Gaddy would want to work at the Interfaith Alliance. That's just a given. So uh, that's there. Um, to work with you was such an honor and privilege. I also, when I came to Interfaith Alliance, that was after, what, almost 20 years right. in the LGBT movement. And some of those years were pretty rough and tumble. You know, some of those years I was less of an advocate and more of an agitator. Mm-hmm. And so my introduction to Interfaith Alliance it began to teach me another way of, of doing things. And the whole concept of uh, civility and civil dialogue, the idea that, that we can meet people where they are, that we can disagree without being disagreeable. I, I think you'll remember the, the time Martin Marty had his conversation, his live um, public radio conversation, mm-hmm. and it was uh, LGBT advocates and those who worked against us. It was pro-life and pro-choice people. It's through the Interfaith Alliance, and it's through working with people like you and connecting with folks like Martin Marty and even people like Bill Moyer that taught me that there's a different way that we can do business, and it's much, for me, much more effective. And so that's, you know, as I end my time here at One Iowa, not only have we, you know, created some great programming and it's a robust and, and, and wonderful organization, but I'm most known in Iowa because I have very public uh, civil dialogue with those who work against us. And in this country, in this time, I think people are so hungry for that. Mm-hmm. So I credit the Interfaith Alliance with, I think, my maturation as a much kinder more civil human being. I'm curious, Donna, where do you think advocates of true religious freedom should be directing their energies right now? We know that we don't know where the radical right is going, except in those places where they've told us. And they have said that they are going to try to pass RIFRAs, the statewide Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, across the country. And I think lovers of religious freedom, as our founders understood religious freedom, need to be prepared for that, and not prepared in response sometime in mid-January, but they need to start preparing now. When I think of the Interfaith Alliance and and all of the issues that it engaged in, uh, we know that Reproductive health, for example, is going to be on the chopping block. We know that, you know, immigration, LGBT equality, we know some of the things that need to be protected. But I think first and foremost, and what really is the umbrella for all of this, is uh, religious freedom. Mm -hmm. Not as an excuse to discriminate against people, but instead to protect. So I think that's where I would be putting my energies. My gosh, 
you're going to be freed to go anywhere you need to go and do anything you need to do and not have to report to an agency, that is scary on one side. Yeah, it's pretty dangerous, right? <laughs> Sumitra, my wife, uh, you married us. Sumitra was recently arrested with the Standing Rock protests. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it was a righteous arrest, of course, mm-hmm. but I have to tell you, after spending a day in jail, when she left, uh, all of the police officers came to see her and hug her and kiss her goodbye. My goodness. <laughs> so that's the kind of, I guess, activism that I embrace. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Donna, talk about the four years that you've spent in your current position. Surprisingly, we fell in love with Iowa and especially Des Moines. Uh, Des Moines, I like to call it the Paris of the Midwest because I am an optimist, but we fell in love with it. Uh, When people talk about Iowa nice, they mean it. I came here as, I think, a long-term interim director, and the job was to decide whether one Iowa, which was really all about marriage issues, whether it should close its doors or was there another job. And so I spent three months going around the state just listening to people. I don't think I hit all 99, but probably 50 counties, uh, and just listen to people. And what we realized was that there needed to be an organization that advocated for equality from cradle to grave. And so we began with literally no programming. Today, we have over 200 events every year. We have programming for um, the parents of children as young as three and four. Uh, all the way through our Gay and Gray in the Midwest programming and even our Grief Academy programming. So we're literally doing this work from cradle to grave. We educate more than 2,000 law enforcement officers every year. Our first year, you know, we'd walk into a room, there'd be 100 men with guns who didn't want to be there, and it was very, very difficult. Three years later, with the highest-ranked training for the Law Enforcement Academy. And so I'm really proud that we've been able to do the kind of work that, one, the community said it wanted because we listened to them, and, two, the kind of work that helps the rest of Iowa understand that we are truly one Iowa and that who we are and who we get to be is both in our hands and theirs. I think it's increasingly important to not lose track of what happens at the state and local level in this country. You've held leadership positions both nationally and locally. How do these differ in your experience? I think nationally, working in Washington, you start to think that that's the center of the universe, and you and I know that it's not, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Uh, working nationally, I think you can impact some, some very important policy, but I do think you lose track uh, or lose sight of what's important. What I love about working with a statewide organization is every day, every day we're on the ground, every day something happens and we know that somebody's life is better or someone's life was saved because of the work we do. It's so personal. It's so real. A state like Iowa, geographically we're a large state, but uh, we just have a little more than 3 million folks here. We're working in rural communities. We're working in places where people would be kind of surprised that we were there. And for me, the greatest satisfaction of working 
locally is that you know the people you're working with, you interact with them, and you, you know what happens. If you do A, B, and C, you find out, you know, the D, E, and F. That's so satisfying. And if you've got it wrong, you know right away. Nobody's afraid to call you <laughs> up. Nobody's afraid to walk in the door. And so you can fix it. And I think that's really important. Donna, what advice can you offer to especially young activists out there right now at this particular time when they probably are feeling like the setbacks have been so heavy in a number of areas and would have the leaning to say, I just need to give up? You know, if you give up, you lose. I think it's that simple. Uh, I've been doing this work in the LGBT community for 30 years in the larger social justice movement for many more. We need to engage. We've, we've been through this before. You know, I work with young people who have never lived in a world where uh, their rights could be taken away, you know, mm-hmm. who've never lived in a world where because they were gay, they were illegal or immoral or mentally ill. We've been there before. We're going to get through this. It's not going to be easy. But what we have to do, and, I, and, and, and whether it's a young LGBT activist or an environmental activist or a religious liberty activist, we have to engage. If we don't, then we are ceding the game to our opponents, and I'm not willing to do that. If this old woman can get out there and do the work, I really hope that um, the young folks who were so inspired by Bernie Sanders were so inspired by parts of the campaigns, they need to keep at it. They need to keep at it. Donna, from the perspective that you have uh, today, what advice would you give the young Donna Redwing? the person you were when you were just starting out? Oh, my. (laughs) Probably the advice would be the more you do, the more you engage, the older you get, the more you realize what you don't know. (laughs) And I think, you know, it's really important to know what you don't know and to play to your strengths. There are things that I am very good at, and there are things I'm not. I wish that maybe I I didn't have to engage in some of the things that I'm not so good at. But I guess the greatest advice would be ask the question, you know, what makes your heart sing? What can you get up and do every morning that completes you as as a person? What can you do to be the, the best person you can be? And then, and then follow that. Yeah. Donna Redwing speaking on this program in 2016, just two years later. She lost her battle with cancer on April 16, 2018, survived by her wife, Sumitra, and son, Julian. She was... 67. I loved her. There's lots more still ahead on this best of shows. We'll hear from the first Muslim chaplain hired by an American university on Ramadan and families celebrating Passover and Easter with Building Jewish Bridges founding director Don Kepler. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website, 
You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows. All of that at stateofbelief.com. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to the best of State of Belief Radio. Religion and radio done differently. The Holy Muslim Month of Ramadan is well underway. In 2016, I spoke with the first full-time Muslim chaplain hired by an American university, Georgetown's Yahya Hindi. I want to congratulate you and your listeners uh, on Ramadan. So Ramadan Mubarak for all. Well, thank you so much. I think it would be helpful if we could start by you talking about the specific practices that come with an observance of Ramadan. During the days of the month of Ramadan, the Muslims uh, abstain from food and drink from uh, dawn to sunset. Uh, so in the summer this year, it starts about 4.15 a.m. and ends about 8.40 uh, p.m. So it's about 18 hours of fasting from food and from drink. But mm-hmm. also we tell our members of the Muslim community who fast, it is not enough to abstain from food and drink. You also need to fast from vain talk and vain action. In the month of Ramadan, Muslims uh, participate in a congregational prayer in the mosque mm-hmm. called Taraweeh prayer, and people uh, gather and pray together, men and women, with the hope of reciting the entire Quran in the month of Ramadan. Also, at the end of the month of Ramadan, uh, every Muslim is supposed to give a charity on behalf of his or her fasting to the poor and to the needy. And uh, people are encouraged to share that wealth with the most vulnerable and the poor in the community. Ramadan is meant to be a month during which we remember that God uh, has given us and given us so much. We need to be grateful to God by the gratitude in action if you will, mm-hmm. uh, by being there for the needy and for those who are less fortunate. The last thing I would say is that uh, Muslims try during the month of Ramadan to visit neighbors, to visit friends, exchange gifts, with the hope of uh, creating a better bond between the members of the community at large, not only Muslim to Muslim, but Muslim to their fellow human beings. Mm. I wish you'd talk about the spiritual meaning behind Ramadan. Muslims believe that God revealed the Torah to Moses when Moses was fasting, and that Mm -hmm. God revealed the good news to Jesus when Jesus was fasting, and that God revealed the Psalms to David when David was fasting, and the Quran to Muhammad when Muhammad was fasting. And for me, this is quite unique that Muslims believe that in order to connect with God, you need to first connect with yourself. Hmm. And that's the most important message of Ramadan. You know, you need to connect with yourself, and you only do that when you are willing to challenge yourself and its concepts and its perceptions of life. Mm-hmm. You know, Moses and Jesus and David and Muhammad all are uh, representatives of pure spirituality. 
during which we connect with God and we connect with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And therefore, for me, that's number one message of spirituality in Ramadan. How do we connect with ourselves? How do I rediscover myself? How do I find my soul? Soul searching. 30 days of soul searching. You can call it a, a spiritual boot camp. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's not easy to be away from food and drink. It's not easy to be in control of yourself in every way, shape, and form for 18 hours a day. No smoking for those who smoke and uh, controlling your tongue. But that's when we are able to find that soul that has been shattered throughout 11 months of the year. The spirit is meant to connect with God by connecting with our fellow human beings. How do we adopt what I call an agenda of passion for compassion? This world needs compassion, and we need to passionately engage with compassion around the world in the state of wars that have created uh, homeless and refugees around the world. Only when we connect with God, only when we connect with ourselves, only when we find that soul can we bring an end to that violence in this world. Mm The other benefit, I guess, we hope to develop, to acquire in the month of Ramadan is to develop a sense of community, mm. a sense of harmony that we need. Uh, another benefit is to think about the needs of the poor. Uh, many mosques, many communities start the idea of building projects for the poor in the month of Ramadan. So you can consider the month of Ramadan the beginning of and you plan for new activities to engage the others. Mm-hmm. Again, we are human beings. Muslims are not perfect. <laughs> I'm sure you know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, there are fights between the brothers and sisters and nephews and nieces and parents and children. So in the month of Ramadan, we hope to find a way to reconnect. Mm-hmm. I'd like now to talk about the relationship between this level of active religious practice and the ongoing challenges faced by Muslim Americans, particularly in today's political climate. Specifically, Imam, is there a resiliency to adversity that comes from physical disciplines such as the fast? Without any doubt. Again, Ramadan teaches us to be patient in the face of difficulties and what Muslims have faced in the last, since September 11, but without any doubt in this political climate and election season, believe me, is not easy for any community to deal with, where there have been mosques vandalized, there have been uh, Muslims beaten up, houses uh, vandalized, or children being told, go home, America is not your country, or you don't belong here, or we need to kill you, or you deserve to be killed. Mm -hmm. When my kids tell me these things that happened to them or other kids, I tell them, smile back. Whoever tells you that, say, I love you. Mm. Actually, in the month of Ramadan, Prophet Muhammad, peace be with him, instructed us, if anyone curses you to bite your tongue and say, I am in a state of fasting, that is to say, I will abstain from cursing you back. So in this political climate where Muslims are attacked right and left in social media and on TV screens and radio stations, Ramadan teaches us to respond with love, with kindness, and with resilience. We're not going to give up on our faith, but at the same time, we're not going to give in 
and act violently as others have done towards us. Mm-hmm. We invite our neighbors to come to our mosques in the month of Ramadan to engage with us, to see who we are, why we fast, how we fast, and the true spirit of the Muslim community that has been giving to America in every way, shape, and form. Muslims donate millions of dollars to the poor in America every year. Muslims contribute to the health care of the society, to education, business, and we are not going to allow narrow-minded individuals and bigots to define who we are, mm-hmm. but we will define ourselves in the way we act as full Americans who care about their society, and we will show that care with love, resilience, and kindness. Imam Hindi, would it be likely or unlikely for Muslims gathering in mosques during this holy season to talk about how faith in your tradition relates to the kind of threats that uh, we have heard in the ongoing political campaign in our nation, would it be natural to talk about the whole proposal of excluding Muslims from coming to this country? Of course, of course. We have been and we will continue to do that. And in the month of Ramadan, we create uh, this uh, resilient in the face of difficulty to be more engaging, to open up more, to educate more. But also for us Muslims, we cannot sit back and expect people to love and care about us and respect us if we are not proactively engaging in the society. It is our society after all. And we we are using our mosques, we are using our homes to engage our fellow non-Muslim Americans, telling them America is a great country and a wonderful country because of the diversity it has. Mm -hmm. And we are all in this together. So in the spirit of Ramadan, we are all in this together. In the spirit of Ramadan, let's engage with what is best for America. In the spirit of Ramadan, let us engage with what makes America better and what makes America better that we act as brothers and sisters, as shipmates working together. And that's the spirit of Ramadan. Mm. Yahya Hindi continues to serve as the Muslim chaplain at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. We need to take one last break and then building Jewish bridges in an interfaith context. You're listening to the best of State of Belief Radio brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. I'm Welton Gaddy. With the overlap of Easter, Passover, and Ramadan this year, here's a conversation we aired in 2010 with the founding director of the organization Building Jewish Bridges, Don Kepler. What is it like for interfaith Jewish Christian families this time of the year? What are the challenges that you see? Well, the, the challenge that is always number one for families year-round and then just comes to a, a point at a holiday time like this is what will we do about the children? How are we going to raise the kids? What identity do we want them to have? And then how will we make that happen in our home? Because if one person's a Jew and one person is a Christian, neither of them have the role-modeled experience of how you would do that. And my guess is that one of the big concerns would be not to seem to prioritize one faith over the other, of one parent saying, well, my faith's more important than yours. Is that a common concern? 
Well, I think that it's a common misconception that most families are trying to do both uh-huh. because that is actually the hardest thing to do. And what I find with couples is that commonly either neither parent particularly cares about religion mm-hmm. or one parent is more attached to religion and the other parent is more secular. It, the, the minority is when a deeply devout Jew and a deeply devout Christian get together because those two positions in life kind of naturally take you away from each other. So if hmm. you're a, a really observant Jew, it's unlikely that you're going to be around a devout Christian. So it's the minority that really are trying to do both in a home, and that is the most challenging, because if you both are at, attached to your religion, you often end up with the child, you're trying to be fair to your partner, and so you're doing sort of the, the King Solomon, um, will we cut the child in half? How yeah. will we share this child equally? And that, I think, is the most painful. So what is the most common piece of advice that you give parents during this time of year? My most common piece of advice year-round is figure out what it is your goal is. What is it you really want? And you have to start out by knowing, who am I? Because I always say to a couple, your child has to know both of you. You are their parents. You can't, even if one faith is subordinate or both faiths are well, they're cultural, I'm not really religious, your child has to know, where did I come from? So once you've decided, who am I? Who is my partner? What are we going to tell our child they are? And there's a difference between knowledge and being. You know one thing, you be something else. Hmm. You obviously know about Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, but you are a Christian, I am a Jew. What will your child be? And then working sort of backwards from that, how will your, you raise your child to be who you want them to be and to know about their, their, parent, their other parents' religious background or cultural background and have that be a comfortable part of their identity because they will, in fact, encompass both people in themselves. Yeah, yeah. Great point. When do you talk to your children about this? I think you start from the beginning and you do it in age-appropriate ways. And that the challenge for adults is that we have full capacity for gray thinking. And we look at our children and they're marvelous and wonderful and insightful and magical and, and awesome. And we think that they're understanding on our level and they're not. So it's important to look at what's developmentally appropriate for children. And I think it's always appropriate to go to your clergy and say, I'm thinking about teaching little Julie about this. What, how would it be a, uh, when would be a good time? Mm-hmm. So, for example, for Jewish parents, there's always the challenge of when do you teach about the Holocaust? This right. is a big, scary concept. Right. I think that the crucifixion of Jesus is a pretty scary concept. So I'm assuming a minister would help you with how do you explain this to a child in such a way that they don't feel frightened by what they're learning Mm-hmm. And they're taking it in a little at a time and ultimately understanding, I, I, I'll say God willing, that's yeah, where I'm coming yeah, from, yeah. Of, as an adult, they would understand the complexities of right. a concept like uh, crucifixion and resurrection, right. and they would understand the complexities that are existent in the Passover story, which can be very uh, simplified for mm-hmm. a child, but is very complex for an adult. 
That conversation is from 2010. Dawn Kepler continues leading the organization she founded, Building Jewish Bridges Today. Find out more at buildingjewishbridges.org. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Please consider making a contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Be a part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week. One person for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. For more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics, until then, you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy. That state of belief. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. See.